Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. All right, so today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Dr. Shireen Idris. Dr. Shireen Idris is unlike her peers. In a time when top-name dermatologists have signed on as corporate brand figureheads, joining in on false marketing hype to appear relevant, Dr. Idris has become a household name for doing just the opposite. She rose to organic fame through her Pillow Talk Derm series on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube for candidly speaking about skincare, sharing the science-based truth behind it all. In doing so, she amassed a following of over 1 million skin nerds across all platforms who called on her to create her very own skincare line, minus any of the BS. With that, Pillow Talk Derm was born. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Dr. Idris. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. When you read that 1 million number, isn't that just like, that's crazy. And your 1 million isn't like a TikTok thing overnight. It's like a lot of it's Instagram, which takes a very long time to build. I'm the youngest of three and I'm used to being ignored (laughs) and I'm used to being shut up by my older siblings. So to this day, I am in awe and fascinated by that number because I'm like, why are they listening to me? (laughs) Given um, my background and how I grew up with my sisters constantly making fun of me. So it's very humbling and I am forever grateful to all of these people who actually care to listen to what I have to say. So thank you to all the nerds out there. <laughs> I love it. Well, we'll get into your childhood too. I want to hear all about the the sister stuff. You hinted at some interesting things there. But yeah, I think one thing you also didn't mention in the bio is like a lot of your stuff is really funny. It's very light. And I think a lot of the times when we think about like medical content or skincare and beauty content, it can feel a little bit prescriptive and like you're kind of feel like you're always doing something wrong and it feels like like class. But when you watch your content, it's super light and super fun and easy to consume. And I know you didn't mention it in your bio, but I just did want to flag that. Like when I was looking through everything, I was like, oh, wow. Like it's really easy to digest, which I wouldn't say is like the first adjective I would use when I describe like medical um, personalities. I will say this. I really appreciate that comment. And I wish if I could go back to my 20s, I would have fast forwarded to today to hear that comment. Because it was something that always bothered me being in this world where I constantly felt like the odd one out. And I felt like I didn't belong in this world because I could see things in my head from a funny perspective. And it was always everything for me was kind of light in my head, even in the darkest moments. And I think that's how I got through life um, and and it got me to where I am today. But that is something that particular point is how why I always felt like the odd one out. And very ironically, when I first moved to New York, I was interviewed to be on some, not, it wasn't, it was some daytime TV show. And the reason they didn't want me to be on the show was because I wasn't polished enough. And I spoke in a way that was too normal 
<laughs> and that was like 10 years ago. Um, and now it's the opposite. So what people rejected me for back then is what, you know, the community is embracing me for the most. So I do, that irony is not lost on me. Yeah. It's so funny too. We remember those comments, right? Like we all remember yeah. that one thing. And then, but the beauty is, I think, especially nowadays, separate from you just being your authentic self and having that be important. I think as a society, we embrace imperfection a lot more now than we did 10 years ago. Like I think there's a reason mm -hmm. why TikTok has taken off recently more than Instagram, as an example, because people crave that human. Like in whatever 100%. tone of voice, with whatever lisp, with whatever thing, like we want the real them. And that's why I even think podcasts are fun, you know? Erica, I, I think I need to meet you because you're going to become one of my closest friends. Oh. She brought up the list because I told her I just had a built-in retainer put up on my top teeth. And it's very hard to enunciate letters with a built-in retainer and I need to get used to it. But um, yeah, 100%. And I think the fact that people are much more accepting of who they are and what they are is a huge advancement for society. It's also a double-edged sword, which you can get to, especially when you're in your 20s and you think authentic self, authentic self. But sometimes you need to reserve some of that authenticity because some people might not be fully ready for it. So I think it's slightly a double-edged sword, but I would say 90% in the right direction. And thank God for people embracing others for what they are. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, I did want to shout out your list, but I would let you say it. I'll be saying it, but I'm like, we appreciate it. I will call it out myself. Um, <laughs> and if I lisp, I apologize, but no, it's, no, I'm it's really great. trying to get used to it. We just want people to be who they are. That's, I think that's what we really want more than anything. When you talk about like authenticity being a double-edged sword, I'm so curious. It sounds like maybe there's an example or there's something that makes you feel like it's actually not always the best thing to be your, you, you said reserve some of your authenticity. What do you mean by that? I think people take that statement as go ahead, be authentic, just be your authentic self to mean whatever they want. And that can be a dangerous thing because some people's authentic self is not very nice. And I'm not trying to say that you need to pad everyone's emotions or we need, I'm not somebody who actually does that, but I think to a certain extent, being your authentic self while being respectful to a situation and being respectful to those around you is the asterisk that needs to be added to that statement. That's um, so funny. Because oftentimes I've even seen it, and it's funny, in my head I'm still 17, but biologically and chronologically I'm almost 40. But I see it when I have younger people coming into the office or the practice or whatever it is, and they are their authentic self, but they don't see themselves as how rude they are to the staff. Do you know what I mean? Or they don't see themselves, how rude they are to the office that, you know, has taken me 20 years to build. And then they leave a wrapper on the table because they're like, what? I'm eating my start. You know? So it's interesting, like be your authentic self, but be respectful to the places and the people surrounding you is something that needs to be added to that statement. I completely agree. I think that's so well said. It's almost like be your authentic self unless your authentic self is like a little shitty, then like be a better version yeah, of your authentic self. Maybe, maybe, yeah, exactly. Like, and know thyself. Like if you yeah. know you're a little shitty, reserve it a little, you know, yeah, yeah, polish, yeah. you know, you don't want to be so rough around the edges where your roughness is going to cut someone else, you know? Yeah, that's spot on. So before we get into the meat of it, we're going to get into your childhood and I want to hear about your sisters, um, which I'm now excited about. But we start every show with a fun question. You can take it any direction you want. Okay. So what is something new that you learned in this past week? 
I'm not cool and I'm cool with it. <laughs> you know, that is something I have learned with all of the Gen Z slang. And I'm going to butcher this word, like chugga, chuggy, whatever that word is. Um, but yeah. ch- I think I said chugga and then everybody chugga. looked at me <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not chuggy chugga, whatever. But, and I'm cool with it. I'm not trying to fit in and I'm just trying to evolve with the world as it's evolving. And if I fit in, I kind of fit in. If I don't, whatever, I'm happy. But that was a term I learned this week. And I was just like, wow, I, <laughs> I, I didn't realize how fast things have evolved or not. But yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. I think we're all <laughs> feeling that way. Even I think the people that seem cool feel like they're not cool because we all geek out in different places in different ways. Like yesterday I recorded a solo episode for this podcast all about all the Broadway shows I saw. And I was like, God, that is really like I geeked out, you know, and I was like, that is like not cool. Like a pat, like deep passion I think is cool, but I think it can kind of come off as like a little nerdy. And we all have those things that make us just like some people it's like music for some people it's like you know, knowing everything about birds, like everyone has their thing. That's just I like, love that. not cool, you know, but I love it. I know, but I just don't think I'm like pop culture cool anymore. Like I'm still singing like TLC and, you know, Mariah Carey and like, I, I still have that music and I'm like, wow, those are now oldies. Like songs from the twenties today equate to songs from like the sixties and seventies in the nineties. Songs from the 2000s, rather, not 20s, 2000s. But it's weird. That's weird. Like a song from the 90s is a song from the 60s for me growing up. And that was a completely different vibe in Lifetime. But then you hear Hit Me Baby One More Time and you're like, wait, that doesn't sound so old or does it? (laughs) I can't tell. I can't tell. It's kind of a weird, it's a weird mind F of a situation with time. I've learned with music, especially like the importance of having your own taste. And this is something that I've been talking a lot about with friends just randomly recently. Like everyone likes the same top 100 songs. Mm -hmm. And it's a little weird. Like we're all so different. Like we should, if you like music from the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, which in your case, 90s, like enjoy it. Go for it. If you really love like rap and like that's your thing, just go for it. If you like, in my case, musical theater, like I think we actually should encourage it's more it's about expression versus being not cool. It's like being confident and original enough to like what you like and be like, yeah, I like this random artist and I don't know why, but I love their voice. But it's funny because I think in today's time, people are more like that. And it's much harder to discover new music because no one is playing the radio in the car. And the top That's 100s true. were like what was constantly played. So we were all brainwashed, right? Like the same song over and over and over again. But now it's like, I feel like, how do you discover a new artist? I don't even know anymore because I don't like drive. Yeah, it's, it's like TikTok, TikTok dances. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But I also have to say like the newer music, and it's funny because I do have this discussion a lot with the medical assistants who are all around 20 to 24 years old in the office. It's like, wow, you guys are all depressed. <laughs> like, Why is everything so depressive? Where's the bubble gum? Where's the sugar pop? Like, let's go. Let's get this life going. Where's the excitement? Everyone is like so depressed with the music genres that, or the song choices that they're putting on the on the speakerphone. And it's, it's actually very interesting. It's interesting yeah. how it's a very depressing tone when you hear the actual music coming from 18-year-olds today versus 18-year-olds when I was growing up. I know. It's such a different time. I mean... We could get into all of the depression levels and anxiety levels. They're just (laughs) through the roof. I think that's probably why it's just reflected in the music because it is people's authentic expression of themselves. Okay, very cool. That's a great one. I think, um, yeah, we all learned that we are not as cool as we want to be, but thank you for sharing. I appreciate you naming it out loud. (laughs) Um, 
on a podcast where we're talking about how awesome you are. So I don't know. We're going to have to, you know, reset that vision at the end of this one. But, um, but yeah, loud and proud. Great. So let's start with childhood. You, you hinted at some family dynamics. What was it like growing up with a couple sisters? And then the other piece I wanted to touch on was like, did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Did you like skin? Did you think you would be a dermatologist? Did you grow up around doctors? Like walk me through childhood and, and how that impacted kind of where you ended up today. So just so you guys have a little bit of like a framework, my family's originally from Lebanon and I was born in 1984. 1983, I was conceived, you know, made. And then 1984, I was born. And that was the height of the civil war in Lebanon. So my family ran away and they ran away on a U.S. naval ship, Navy ship, naval ship. My English is still messed up, even though I was born and raised here. Okay. But they literally ran away because their apartment building was getting bombed. And my dad was lucky enough to have a green card because he did his medical training in the U.S. And he only got that because his mentor at the time, may he rest in peace, was like, Ziad, don't be a moron, just have it. Optionality is great. And that's how he got it. So my mom was pregnant. They ran away. We went to, they went to Cyprus. I was a fetus in utero. And they were like, okay, she's not going to be a Cypriot. You know, I have the green card. Let's go to the U.S., pop her out and come back. And that's how I was born. And that was my introduction to the world. And I think that anxiety that my mom was probably feeling... <laughs> Somehow I got through osmosis and has been the driving factor of my life of I need to survive um, at all costs. And that has been a huge driving factor for me. But that kind of just kind of sets the tone. And I have two older sisters. Both are one is four years older. One is three years older. They're like 12 months apart. So they grow up like Irish twins, very close to each other. And although four years difference is not that much, they made it seem like it was an eternity growing up. So they used to put the scotch tape on the floor, the duct tape and being like, you're not allowed to cross that line. You know, it was like, you're super white, you're blonde. My sisters are like olive tones, caramel tones. One looks almost Indian uh, with black hair, brown eyes. And they're like, I don't know what happened to you. You were switched at birth. Did you ever think of that? Like literally. And it wasn't coming from a, I mean, Kids are kids, you know, and I don't think they were trying to be mean, but it was mean. But at the time, it also built a lot of resistance. And I would come up with like really inappropriate comebacks. Right. But I was also like six years old and I was just trying to defend myself. And but it, it also taught me how to like look at things through a funnier lens. And I realized that if they got to me, they were going to win. So I would always either kind of crack a joke or say something that I thought was funny. And even if they didn't laugh, I would laugh and walk away. <laughs> And they're like, well, what? She's, she's a wackadoo. You know, that one's just a nut job. And then I was also the, one of the youngest of seven cousins and we're very close. And they actually lived in Lebanon. So when we finally went back to Lebanon, we were all very close. But I as, I'm like the before last one. And they had this thing where they would go one, two, three, shut up, Shireen, <laughs> literally. And because I was so quick on my feet to have my own little defenses, I would just kind of like snap back. But I think it taught me how, like, A, to kind of speak up. But there was a moment in my life when I was in my adolescence and mid-20s where I did think it kind of messed with me and I didn't want to speak up so much. But for that, I am very grateful because it really built character. I was not a kid that was padded emotionally by my sisters or my cousins. And I can say I absolutely love each and every one of them to death. And I'm not saying that to be correct. I really do. And I love my sisters more than life. And we have a very good relationship. But growing up, they taught me how to really like, you know, build a thicker skin and have a backbone and not take everything so personally or so seriously. 
And that sort of mentality, I think, has been the driving force as well throughout my own life and throughout all the obstacles that I've faced. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all that and, and being vulnerable too. I I think I'll start with your comment about how you were born and yeah. the anxiety you felt. Yeah. You want to know another story? Yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah. When I was born, when I was born, when my mom pushed me out, I've actually never said this on a podcast. I was a meconium baby. Do you know what that is? I do. I do. I know a meconium baby that didn't survive. I didn't. I know a meconium baby that didn't survive. So I kid you not, I do think pregnancy and the feelings that a mother, person a mother is feeling do get translated to a certain extent. And I don't think I've actually fully thought of it until right now on this podcast and putting those two together. But I was a meconium baby. I took a dump as I was coming out through my mother's canal and I choked on all of my crap, my meconium, right? And they had to kind of pump me. And thank God I was fine. I mean, TBD, debatable if I'm fine or not. But I think, you know, um, but that was something I think that is telling of how a person is born into this world and that potential probable anxiety or that, you know, survival factor kind of being ingrained. Um, but I was a meconium baby. Wow. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I'm so glad no. you survived. No, thank we're you. talking about anxiety during birth. I mean, yeah. like, that's a real thing. I... My, one of my first cousins I never met, he he died, you know, within days of being born as a meconium baby. And I'm best friends now with his brother and sister. So it's very weird to think about. And I'm so glad you survived. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's a real thing. It's a real thing. And I think we don't even understand the layers of it. We can just say generally, if your mother experienced severe trauma when you were in, in utero, you have this anxiety around survival. I'm the same way. My mom experienced... My, my, actually, my dad passed away when she was seven months pregnant, which is kind oh, of wild. No. Um, oh, yeah. So and sorry. so, yeah, we don't have to get into all that, but it's just yeah. like she totally experienced a crazy trauma when we were seven months utero. And I think, yeah, I share that anxiety around like just wanting to survive and like being really gritty. And I don't know, maybe it's also we have strong moms and maybe that was it. Honestly, I've never made the connection until right now as I was yeah, me my, too. I, I, I truly have never made that connection until literally right now. But it kind of makes sense. Um, and flash forward to when I was 33, 34, and I was pregnant with my daughter. I got fired while I was pregnant. And nothing compared to the trauma that your mother went through. But it was still emotionally traumatic to have gone through IVF and all this stuff, finally establishing myself in New York City where I knew no one and I was fired. Again, nothing in comparison. But I remember my dad, who is a pediatrician, was like, Shereen, you got to calm down because what you're feeling, the baby is going to feel. And I was like, dad, that's the last thing I need to hear right now. You don't understand. Like, I can't believe this. I don't want to say, leap fired me for no reason. Like, it was like, and he said that. And when he said that, I was like, why are you saying that? You're going to make me feel so guilty if something happens to the baby. Like, you know, and it was just like amplified in my head, but he was so right. And my daughter came out of a very anxious little baby. <laughs> very anxious little baby. And I was like, oh my God, he was right. I feel like she's had, hopefully has had a little tipping point in the past year or so. She's calmed down, but it's very interesting. If anyone is pregnant yeah, well, out there, try to relax as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> if you can, if you can. We're all just anxious people and that's the society we live in. Who, who, knows? who knows? But Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about your sisters. I'm yeah. so curious. So I totally hear you and your cousins on you know, kind of that bullying, making you tougher. I think a lot of that stuff is hard in the moment, but it ultimately like it does make you strong. I'm so curious, what do they all do now? 
Are they also physicians? What did your mom do? It sounds like your father was a pediatrician, but like, what was the, from a career standpoint, what, what, where did everyone land and like, what did everyone do? So currently we're all three doctors. Okay. We are immigrants or refugees, however which way you want to dice it. I don't know, but we are immigrants and with immigrant mentality, it's like, you got to have something that you can put in your brain and that you could take from place to place because you don't know when your apartment's going to get bombed. And if you need to go survive somewhere else, you can survive somewhere else with a degree in your brain. And so that was sort of that mentality. And so my dad was like, if you love philosophy, great, but I'm not going to help you get through and pay with for your education if you decide to go to university. He's like, you're on your own. I can buy the books, but we're not going to pay X amount of money a year so you can just study philosophy, which a lot of people like my husband is like, that's crazy mentality, but that's sort of the mentality we grew up with. Did they tell us you have to become doctors? No, they didn't. But again, backtrack, my grandfather, my dad's dad was the first pediatrician in Lebanon that ever came to Lebanon and, or like graduated. And he ended up coming to the U S training in the U S in the forties, fifties, forties actually, and then went back to Lebanon. So it's very much in our DNA. My dad followed his dad and then we were all born with that sort of mentality of do something with your brains and have a degree. Um, so we all had our own different paths to ending up in medicine but I can only speak for myself. I discovered rather early on that I did not want to have a desk job, that I felt that the life would get sucked out of me if I was sitting underneath fluorescent light bulbs. <laughs> Backstory is I got my first cell phone at 16 and I didn't realize the concept of cell phone bills, which sounds very stupid because I feel like 16 year olds today are much smarter. And I was calling friends and calling people and being like nonstop. And I got a bill, which was like $500. And my mom was like, you're going to pay that bill. Whether you have to work all year to make the money, you're going to make the money and you're going to pay that bill. So you know the value of the dollar and you never repeat that. And so I got a job as a data entry person at the NIH where I would go and like literally enter data. And that's where I was like, I never want to sit underneath fluorescent light bulbs and look at Excel sheets ever again in my life. And that was it. So that was the only criteria I had. And I was also somebody who was always very resourceful and liked working with my hands. And I thought, you know what? I want to go become a surgeon. I love aesthetics. I love beautiful looking things. I love enhancing things. I love changing things or molding things with my hands. You know, I, I think I'm going to go become a surgeon and I love plastics. And so very honestly, when I was 17 in high school, I applied to the seven-year BAMD program at the George Washington University. And I was like, I'm going to become a plastic surgeon. This is my calling in life. Look at these little machetes I've done with paper. Like, look at these little things I've done. In these, not machetes, whatever it's called, machi that I've done with paper. Look at all these things. And it was sort of what I thought was going to be my calling in life. And then when I was, I think, my second or third year of undergrad, my middle sister had some weird eczematous reaction on her skin. So I accompanied her to the dermatologist. And the only view I had of derm was that Seinfeld episode where it was like some pimple popper. And I was like, oh, this is going to be lame, but I'm going to go with her. And I was there and I was just fascinated. I was fascinated by all the devices. I was fascinated with the fact that my sister could show something on her skin and the doctor can help her. And my sister wanted to help herself because that was the thing about medicine, which I hated, which is like, you have to convince people that they have blood pressure and they can't see it. Or you have to convince people that they have diabetes and they feel fine. Like, I don't want to convince anyone of anything. I don't, you know, if you see it and you want help, I'm going to help you. But if you don't see it, I'm not going to tell you, you have a problem, you know? And so I was like, wow, that's really cool. And they could do cosmetic stuff without actually fully changing the essence of a person. 
Plus, you have a relationship with your patient. It's not a one-hit wonder surgery goodbye. So I was like, changing lanes, I want to do dermatology. And I never looked back. And I was probably at the time 19 years old. Wow. And the fact that you knew even at 17, you wanted to do that seven-year program. I feel like those are very few and far between. And it's so hard to know. I mean, let alone after college, what you want to do. You, you knew in high school. What gave you the confidence to do that route versus just doing like pre-med like everyone else? You know, it's interesting. I was very clear cut like my senior year of high school and I had like a very clear vision of what I wanted. But that's not to say when I became a freshman, I was like, what am I doing? You know, and those questions came up a lot throughout my years as an undergrad and even my first and second year of med school where I would be crying and I would like call my family and tell them like, this sucks. I have no social life. My friends are out at clubs. They're dancing on tables. They got six figure jobs. I'm here in debt. I'm still reading books. I'm in a library. Like my life is wasting away. My youth is wasting away. But then my father was very, very, is, knock on wood, very, very, I think, wise, and he's a sounding board, and he was like, listen, Shereen, no matter what you want to do, it's going to take years to get it done. So forget about the years, and don't look at life as this never-ending thing. Look at it as like a beginning with an end, and realize how small this time is. And consider this time your time in prison, okay? You're putting in your time. And once you have that, go dance on a table at a club. Go do whatever you want to do with your life, but you have something now that no one, no man, no woman, no person, no corporate entity can ever take away from you. So just finish it and then decide what you want to really do. And I was like, you know what? He's right. The hard part was getting in. And so I was like, you know what? We're just going to suck it up and do it. And that's what I did. The irony of the whole story, though, is my first year as an intern, so after the whole undergrad and med school situation, you go through an intern year and then your residency, I ended up in a prison hospital. So I was like, Dad, I thought I was done with the prison time. And now I'm at a prison hospital. I'm, in prison. I'm actually in prison. And he was like, I, I, that's not what I meant. But you know, you brought that upon yourself. Um, so my first intern year, I was a physician at a prison hospital outside of Boston. That's so funny. You accidentally manifested that. That's I saw a hundred percent. And I believe in manifesting things and putting out there what you really want. Does it happen right away? No, but some version of it happens in some way, shape or form. Um, but the point of that whole story is I wasn't fully convinced throughout the journey and I got confused throughout the journey. But as long as you have that North Star and it doesn't have to be a North Star. And I actually tell this to my cousin who's currently living with me and she's 24. It doesn't have to be a North Star of like specificity. I'm going to be a dermatologist in New York City with an avenue of the Park Avenue practice. But it doesn't have to be that. Your North Star has to be a feeling, an emotion of what it is that's going to make you fulfilled and happy and content. Once you know what you're trying to achieve in your life, whether that is making money, whether that is making people happy, whether that is changing something, that North Star of the feeling, it should be your driving force. And then you lay the pieces of the puzzle to get to that point. But it doesn't have to be a very specific, hard-lined, delineated job title. Does that make sense? Because I knew Absolutely. doctor, maybe Durham. Yes, Durham. No Durham. <laughs> hate medicine. Love medicine. I want to just help people. I just don't want a desk job, you know? And that North Star back and forth is what got me to just finish. And the rest followed. 
I love it. I'm almost envisioning like an onion and like what you're really meant to do in your life is like at the very middle and like everything is just peeling back one layer. So it's like, oh, doctor. Okay, cool. That's narrows down the field a bit. Oh, yeah. a derm. Okay. And you just like continue to get smaller and smaller. A hundred percent. But yeah, you can't be close minded to other opportunities. I mean, you're the perfect example of that. Like, no. you know, you have this dermatology path and then you're like, huh, content creation. Interesting. Ah, oh, being a business owner. Interesting. And I think sometimes when you're, when you have blinders on, you don't see those opportunities because you're like, oh no, that wasn't what I planned. But it's also like when you're in love, right? Hold on. Side note, side note. And this is for 20 year olds. Like, let's say you're in a shitty relationship and you don't really like your partner, but yet you're like comfortable. If you stay in that relationship, and I'm not a love guru person, but I see this in my practice, and this is a very, it's an analogy that I think a lot of people can understand. If you stay in this like mediocre relationship, you're not going to see the other options that are coming your way because your visors are kind of on and you're focusing your energy on your attention on something that's not great instead of getting rid of that from your life and opening your eyes to the world of what you could potentially have. And so it's the same when it is, when it comes to your career, you know, like if you have very, very strong visors and if you think I got to be laser focused and I got to be a millionaire by the time I'm 26 and I got to be on 30 under 30, it's, you know, that's kind of a bigger picture thing, but like if I have to be like a private equity, whatever it is, you know, like you have to open up your world and not be so boxed in into your laser focused vision. But I think if you have a direction rather than a laser focused idea endpoint, then it's easier to pivot along the way. Did that make sense or did I just mm. kind of Makes perfect sense. Okay. It's actually, as you're saying that, I'm like, it's advice I need to hear right now. So I'm like taking it in and I'm like, yeah, actually, yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, because okay. I think sometimes we can, we can obsess. I mean, I'm in a place now where like I'm obsessing over one goal, you know, and I won't get into specifics. And I think sometimes it, you need to kind of just like relax that a little bit. And just be open to like, where are you feeling that there is a lot of things moving forward and where there are new opportunities and, and just not be so obsessive over that like one thing, I think is actually really, really good advice. And you have to almost learn that the hard way, like, cause you can squeeze it too tight. You almost suffocate the thing You'll suffocate and then it doesn't it. become possible. You'll suffocate it. Yeah. And the biggest thing you just said is what are you feeling? And it is a feeling, it's a gut feeling. Like if you feel like you're going against the tide, pivot. You know, it doesn't mean you can't go in that same direction. It just means you're going to pivot while you're going in that direction. Um, and I just think that's something that a lot of people are very, and I even saw this with my own sister who was like hard hit. We're not going to talk about her case specifically, but she really wanted one thing and she wanted one and she kept, it was eating away at her soul because she wasn't getting it. And I was like, you have to pivot and find the direction of life and that flow and go with it and see what other direction happens. And when she did, she ended up with something that she's very happy with. So I'm glad she did, but a lot of people don't end up pivoting and they end up getting boxed in and depressed in the process. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. We're all figuring it out day by day, but yeah. I want to hear, okay, so you, you do the program, you then go become an intern mm -hmm. at Tufts. And you do residency at Tufts? The intern year was at a, um, the, the, it was Shattuck Hospital. It's a Tufts affiliate, but it was Shattuck Hospital. And then I did my residency at Tufts, yes. Amazing. And at this point, are you liking dermatology and only doing that? I mean, from what I know and what I see, internship year, residency year, you have no time for anything else. Like we're talking about all these other cool things you're doing. I feel like that all happens once you're practicing because you are just working so hard during residency. Honestly, back in the day, a hundred percent. And I don't know how all these residents are like doing all this social media stuff and they're not, I, I don't, I don't understand. Cause I would have never been able to do it. And 
they are better than me 100% in that respect because I don't know how they do it. It was Durham residency is cush, quote unquote, in the sense that you're not doing long hours overnight dealing with life and death. But what people don't realize is you never learn dermatology in medical school. You have to learn it in residency. And it's a lot of details, a lot of minutiae, a lot of things that you will never, you've never even heard of as a doctor um, graduating with just an MD. And so all of that had to be absorbed from the hours of 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. until you start over again the next day in clinic and while you're actually on your feet seeing patients. So it was a lot of studying. It was a lot of studying. And it happened to coincide in a time in my life where you're trying to find yourself. You're like 25, 26, asking yourself questions. Am I going to have a partner in life? Am I not going to have a partner in life? And I was dating somebody who's a great person, but just not the right person for me. And we separated. And when we separated, I got really depressed. I was like, oh my God. And that's when I started dermatology, the residency program. So my first year was a complete failure. <laughs> I nearly failed um, the in-service exam and the program director wanted to kick me out. He put me on academic probation because I was not in the right mindset because I thought, oh my God, I missed out on the love of my life who wanted to marry me and I didn't want to marry him back. And again, I was 26 trying to figure out my life. I thought, check, graduated med school, check, got into residency. I'm in residency, I'm safe. So I can take it, I could slow it down a bit. And I slowed it down a little bit too much and nearly got kicked out in the process. It was a hard time in that sense, trying to juggle where do you want to go with your life on a professional level? And where do you want to go with your life on a personal level when everything is sort of intersecting at a weird pivotal, you think pivotal moment that's do or die, that it's going to not happen if it never happens now. But that's not the reality. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's hard to imagine mindset back then, right? Like yeah. you look at it now and you're like, oh, of course that wasn't the person for me. And oh, of course, like, but in those moments, it feels like the end of the world. It's like, yeah. um, and having having to do that with work is really tough. I'm so curious, how did you find your current partner? What did, what happened there? That's a long story, but he, he, he has taught me many things. But the biggest lesson I think Omar has taught me is perseverance in the sense of if you feel something in your gut, again, to what we were talking about, and that's the direction you want to go. And I was his direction that he wanted to go. He pivoted many times over the course of four years to get my attention, but he kept pivoting and he kept trying different things. And the funniest part is ultimately I ended up reaching out to him when I was depressed. It's a long story, but it was all through Facebook. He stalked me. He would send me messages every couple of months over a course of four years. When I got really sad and really depressed right before I failed my exam that first year, um, I was like, I need to go vent to somebody and I, it shouldn't be my sisters because I don't want them to worry and I don't want my family to get freaked out because I'm living in Boston alone. So I'm going to go on Facebook, see who's online and I'm going to pick a stranger <laughs> and I'm going to vent to them because I can't afford a therapist. So then I clicked on his name. <laughs> And I was like, hi, Amr. And he was like, now you're messaging me? It's been four years I've been messaging you on Facebook. And I was like, yeah. He's like, why are you messaging me? And I was like, because I'm depressed. And he was like, what do you mean? And so I told him the whole story about my ex. I told him the whole story about like, I messed up my life and I don't know what I'm doing and all this stuff. And we just started talking on Facebook chat and um, BBM, BlackBerry Messenger at the time, and then on the phone. But he was living in London and I was in Boston. And so after a few months, I was like, listen, Amr, I don't really remember you at all. So this is very awkward. How did you first get connected? How did you guys first meet? Through a family friend. And then he had just found me and followed me on Facebook. And to be polite, I accepted it because the family friend 
was the connection. So I was just like, accept, but I never really communicated back with him. Um, but so fast forward to two months after we start speaking on the phone and I'm like, listen, I, I don't want to appear insensitive or mean, but I'm very fine now. I'm not depressed at all. And I really do have you to thank for like kind of listening and hearing me out throughout the process. But this is odd because something is happening here and I don't remember you. And what if we meet and I'm not attracted to you? Or what if we meet and you're not attracted to me? Why am I going to lead myself on and then get depressed again? So goodbye. Have a nice life. I'm going to hang up. And if one day we meet, we meet. And I literally hung up the phone. And he ended up coming that Friday. And it was a Tuesday when that conversation happened. And he got on the first plane on Friday night after work, came to Boston. And it was like, I had known him forever. And that was it. He, he was very, very persistent. He, he knew what he wanted and he pivoted. And when the right moment opened up, instead of being like that, B-I-T-C-H, i.e. me, rejected me for so many years, he was open to kind of hearing about it and it just became a friendly conversation and we became friends really before we became partners. Um, so, yeah. What a good story. Thank you for sharing that. I have mad respect for the persistence. You do not see that most days now. No. When you hear how people meet, it's like not that story. A hundred percent. Like you see these 20 year olds who are like, oh, they give up so fast. If you don't love something, quit it. If you're not happy with something, forget about it. Move on. Other and everything is so replaceable and so giving upable. And that's like when I hear people advise when you're old, if you don't like something, just move on. No, no, no. Like you might like it. It might be hard. It doesn't mean it's worth giving up on. But it means you have to pivot in how you want to approach it. Do you have to approach it from another direction? Do you have to see it through a different lens? Do you have to take a step back before you can take a step forward? It doesn't mean it's not necessarily right for you, but you have to feel it and feel how you need to approach it. So I, that piece of advice, when I hear that, I'm always like, I roll my eyes and I'm like, these people are being misled <laughs> in a way that is not going to help them be prepared for life. Totally, totally. Okay, let's jump now to some of the content creation stuff. Yeah. So you're practicing, you, you go through residency, you don't get kicked out, thank mm -hmm. goodness. Mm -hmm. And you go and you practice for eight years at two different practices, if I'm right. Is that correct? Uh, yes, you're correct. And then I entered a third practice. So three practices. And then a third practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you that was your own though, right? That the third fourth, one? The or fourth, no? fourth. Fourth was my own. The fourth was your own. So you start your own. So now you're your own boss. Like what was starting that like? And then when did content creation come into the mix? Like when did you have a second to even do that? Because that's a lot of work. You put out a lot of content. I will tell you this. If I had stuck to my original plan of graduating residency, opening my office, starting my own thing, I would have hated my life. And I say this because I was not seasoned enough. I was not established enough as a physician. Um, I had not made the mistakes that I needed to be, make under the radar. And I did not have enough of a patient base where I could feel comfortable enough practicing without having to worry about making ends meet. So the fact that my life pivoted for me and I met my husband who lived in London and I was in Boston and he moved to New York and I had to move to New York for him and I didn't go back to Washington DC was the biggest blessing for me. And all of the mistakes that I had along the way, working at that first practice then working at the second practice where I got fired when I was pregnant to working at the third practice where I was literally at rock bottom emotionally that I didn't care. So that's when I picked up my phone and started content. That's what gave me the confidence to then be able to start my own office because I had created now 
a world in which I knew I had the backing of all of these people. And in parallel, I had now eight years under my belt where I had been seeing patients and I had built my own practice and I had a patient base and a very loyal one that I was not just hanging up my shingles, hoping for a person to walk in, hoping to be able to pay the bills and hoping to be able to help support all the people who work in the office. So the way that it happened for me, I do not regret anything. Although at the time I was like, why did I get fired? Why don't I have my own office? This sucks. I have to work for this person. I have to work for that person. But it ended up being the best thing because content creation happened as a fluke. It happened in 2018 before all the doctors were online. And I was actually made fun of a lot. And I received a few DMs from physicians who I know were trying to send it to other physicians to be like, look at what this girl's doing. Who does she think she is? And it actually, they sent it to me by accident. Um, so I actually, oops. yeah, I was like, oops, hi, like little, you know. So I received a few of those DMs in 2018 because it was different. And it was, you know, I wasn't doing what everyone else was doing because I didn't care. And I was just like, again, rock bottom. I'm just going to talk. I'm going to get over my fear of public speaking. I'm going to answer a few questions. And that's how that started. And that became its own little world and it became a support system in the process. It's incredible. I think also sometimes when you don't believe in yourself, you can lean on other people who believe in you. And I found that that's something that like, especially with content creators and people that build community, like for those moments where you feel down or you feel like uninspired, they're there to be like, we're here, we're ready for what you have to say. And that can be motivation enough to like, get up and do things. So true. So I'm glad you found that community and you've built that community, you know? I mean, it's so it's so amazing and strong and then you started a business because of the community. Yeah. Like what what how did that come together? It was so it was in 2020. At that point, it was like the height of the pandemic. I had made up my mind that I'm going to go do my own office. If I don't start my own office, if I don't scratch that itch, it's never going to happen. So it's now or never in that sense for me. And it was a pivotal moment in time. My kids were always home. I didn't have to worry about it. So that's when I was actually decided I want to launch the office. In parallel, 2020 was a very interesting year for like online skincare, et cetera, where a lot of people were talking about their skin and self-care, you know, and that whole thing. And people were really just, it was a very buzzy world right? Which has kind of quieted down because people have gone back to living their lives and thank God they're not as obsessed, but it was a very buzzy time. And at the time there was some, I'm not going to name brands, but some brand scandal. And everyone was like, oh my God, their SPF is not what it, you thought it was. And, blah, 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 blah. and I think I was like, I had had it and I had COVID and I was locked in my room for two weeks alone. And I think I was kind of delusional. And I go online and I'm like, this is bullshit. Like, how are we supposed to trust brands? And like, I was like, honestly, venting. I'm like, what if we started our own skincare brand? What should we do that? Should we do it? Should we not do it? And it was overwhelmingly like, I think it was like 15,000. I don't know how many people had voted. And it was like 99%. Yes, let's do it. And the amount of DMs that I got in that night was like, oh my God, thank God my husband wasn't sleeping in the room with me. I was up to like 4 a.m. answering people. Um, but I was like, this is it. We're doing it. And so that day, that next day, I basically, I was kind of like playing with the idea with a chemist beforehand, not really not knowing if I should do it. But when I got that sort of like push, I emailed the chemist. I'm like, I'm going to sign you today. I called the lawyer. I was like, let's draft this situation up. And my husband, when I walked out, I was like, what did you do? And why did you spend X amount of money? Because that's a lot. That's a big charge on the credit card train. Like, you're not really working right now. <laughs> like, Why are you charging so much money for like a chemist? What? And I was like, Amr, we're starting a skincare brand. He was like, have you lost your mind? You're about to open an office. And I was like, don't you worry about it. We're going to figure it out. And literally, that's how it happened. It was at the when I had COVID, November 2020 was when the whole thing sort of came together. Unbelievable. 
unbelievable. But I think that's also it, like being open and flexible to what people are telling you. It's back to our original thing we were talking about with like not having blinders on, like you were willing to ask the question, should we do it? And maybe you didn't even think you were really asking a real question. Like it was maybe more rhetorical, but it's like being open to feedback and being open to interest. And then not just being like, okay, well, I won't do that. That's a lot of work. But being like, what if we did it? You know, and asking those hard questions and then actually taking action and calling the people. You know how many people will put up a poll like that? That's like, should we do this? Should we buy this? Should we start this? And they never do anything. They don't take action. But like you literally called the chemist and the lawyer and were like, let's do it now. Yeah. I, I mean, life is long, but life is also fleeting. And at the end of the day, we're all going to be in the same place. We're all going to the same destination. So it's you might as well try to have fun with it and see what happens. And a lot of times I will say like, God bless me being so naive because if I know now what I, you know, if I knew then what I know now, what I have done it, like it's so much work and I'm sure there's so much more work to come, but as long as you enjoy the ride and you're okay with the ups and I've had a lot of downs since and a lot of punches to the gut since you're still surviving at the end of the day. It's just a matter of how are you going to take, you know, your cards and play them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. I just have one final question for you. I could keep talking to you about all the things. Um, but what is, this is, we ask, we ask all our guests this question. What is the one piece of advice that you would give to every 20-something? The one piece of advice that I would give to every 20-something would be learn to listen to your gut. And it's very hard to actually do. And it sounds like fluff, but learn to listen to your inner voice turn down the noise and try to see what it is that you are really about. And like I said earlier, it's not about having a concrete, very delineated destination, but it's about having an overall feeling of where you want to be and seeing that for yourself and kind of trying to get to that throughout your life. That's probably the best piece of advice. It's a little bit blurry, as advice, but if you really listen to it and you take it for what it is and you try to do it, it becomes very clear. Absolutely. Do you have any practices that you follow to listen to your gut and get clarity around that North Star? Like, do you journal? Do you meditate? Do you talk to friends and family? Do you, as there certain people you go to as like mentors or role models, what, what does that look like for you? Yeah. Prior to having kids, like I would have time alone a lot to be in my own mind. But with kids, with two office, with an office, with another business, the skincare line, the noise has gotten very loud. So two things I do is I vent all day, every day to my patients in a sense. I tell them about my problems and I'm open to their solutions and I hear about their problems and I get inspired by their stories. So I'm an open book. You kind of know everything. Um, but the second thing that I started doing is meditating, very honestly, where I wake up in the morning and or usually up around 6 a.m. from 6.15 to 6 you know, 20, 35, 20 minutes or so, we do like some sort of transcendental meditation where I close my eyes and I just repeat a mantra. And then I try to honestly visualize that feeling of what I want and what it is that I want and where it is that I want to be for like the last five minutes of that meditation. And that has been surprisingly very, very helpful. I've been doing it now for like probably seven months, um, but it has been very helpful to ground me. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. It's always interesting to hear what works for people, right? It's so different for everyone. I used to think it was bullshit, but it's great. It's great. I know. And there's so many different kinds of meditation. Um, 
So can you please let everyone know where they can find you on social media and re, you know see all your amazing videos and then also where they can learn more about Pillow Talk Derm, which is your, your skincare brand? Yeah, I would love for you guys to come find me and I will say hello back. I'm on uh, Instagram at Shireen Idris. Same handle on YouTube, same handle on TikTok. And then Pillow Talk Derm is the skincare line. So they have their own handle on Instagram and TikTok. And they can go to pillowtalkderm.com to sign up, be part of the new, the nerd community where you can hear from me every week. I love it. I love that you're just embracing that they're skincare nerds and that's just what they're called. That's really what they are. Thank you for being here. Thank you so <laughs> much. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. This was so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.